Sometimes it feels like we're doing a lot of the, this service comes to you courtesy of announcements. If it's not Beecham's powders, well today I think it's yak track and other kind of crampony things you can put on your boots. But just genuinely, thank you sir, for coming along this morning. Um, it's not a nice morning. And I'm also very grateful that one or two other people have very wisely stayed at home on such a treacherous day. But we are here to worship God. And as our call to worship this morning, we hear some words from Isaiah chapter 32. The palace will be forsaken, the populous city deserted, until a spirit from on high is poured upon us, and the wilderness becomes a fruitful field, and the fruitful field is deemed a forest. Then justice will dwell in the wilderness, and righteousness abide in the fruitful field. The effect of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness and trust forever. We come with our prayers of approach to God, and as has become our custom, at the close of that prayer, we will join together in the words of the Lord's Prayer. And in our own fashion, we will pray that in our own first languages, whatever they may be, And if your first language is in English, then in whichever version you happen to feel most comfortable with. If, however, you're not sure of the words, there will be a version appear on the screen. Sometimes it feels like I do a lot of um, announcing about how to pray, but uh, it's in the interest of trying to help us all to engage with it. So let's take some time to pray to God, to talk to the God who loves us. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for this new day, a day in which we can take time to step out of our everyday busyness to focus on you. Thank you for the incredible creation of which we are just a tiny part. Just like the psalmist of old, we can feel very insignificant when we look at the stars and realise just how far away they are. Or when we hear just how many people live on this one little planet. But you tell us that you know each of us. And you love each of us. And that's just wonderful. Sometimes when we think about ourselves, we don't like it very much. No matter how hard we try to be kind or generous we still find ourselves getting annoyed or feeling mean. And sometimes we even worry that we're not good enough to be Jesus' friends after all. Then we remember, you always love us, you always forgive us, and you always help us to try again. Sometimes we find it hard to pray, Hard to talk to you. The words come out all wrong. Or we feel embarrassed because our thoughts are clumsy. Help us to remember that you know exactly what we mean. And that you're delighted when we try to pray. Sometimes though, it's just all too confusing. Too painful. Or too complicated. Sometimes what we need is you to help us in our prayers. 
And so we're really glad that Jesus gave us a pattern for our prayers, which we can use together, as, along with other people in all places and all times. And so we pray together by saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who protect our against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Thy is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Apparently somebody was asking this morning, what is the significance of the title of the sermon series, which is Read, Mark, Learn. Um, It's kind of a very bad pun. When I was growing up, my dad used to say to us regularly, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest, um, which is, I think, a saying that a lot of people probably grew up with. And so because we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, over a few weeks, or the beginning of the Gospel of Mark over a few weeks, my brain went into bad pun mode, and we have read Mark, learn. So that's all it is, really. It's a really naff pun, but there you go. It kind of amused me for three seconds. The story of the time between Jesus' baptism and the start of his ministry is what I expect we think that we know inside out and back to front. It's been preached on times without number, and just about every conceivable take on the underlying messages has been explored. If you're at all like me, you can find yourself not really hearing what's said, or if you do hear what's said, just aligning it with what we already know, because surely there is nothing else for us to discover, is there? Well, as we continue our exploration of the first part of the Gospel of Mark, I hope that we are continuing that endeavour to come to it with an open mind and open heart, seeking new insights and new understandings. The Gospel begins with the expression, the beginning of the good news. And we still are at the, the beginning of the good news. Literally, it's still the first page of the Gospel, It's still at the start of the story chronologically. And also this is still where the author is setting out the foundation principles of what they want to teach us. I deliberately set Luke's account of the temptation story alongside Mark's for one reason and one reason only. And that's just to illustrate the stark difference between the two accounts. Because Mark, in just two short verses, says all that he wants to say and all that he thinks is needful to say about this part of Jesus' life. Whereas Luke and Matthew give us extended and even slightly contradictory accounts of what took place. And it seems to me that an awful lot of energy can be expended trying to make one single coherent story out of these three accounts when actually we might be better just to say, well, okay, there are differences. Each gospel has its own slant, and maybe that gives us something new to contemplate. 
Usually, we equate the 40-day sojourn of Jesus in the desert or the wilderness, depending which gospel you're reading, with the 40 years that Moses and the Israelites sojourned in the desert. And that is a valid understanding. And it's clearly what both Matthew and Luke do. They choose what the scholars term an exodus motif. And that's illustrated by the fact that all the the scriptures that Jesus quotes in uh, in the dialogue with the tempter are taken from Deuteronomy. And certainly in Matthew's gospel, the idea of Jesus as a new Moses come to complete or fulfill the law is something that runs right through that gospel story. But it isn't the only understanding of number 40. 40 comes in many other places within the Hebrew scriptures, as we'll see as we go along. So it is quite possible and legitimate to make other comparisons of 40 periods. Mark's gospel is generally accepted to be the first one that was written, and it doesn't have a birth story. John and Jesus just appear from nowhere and nothing. And in this gospel, scholars identify what they call a paradise motif, a subtle reference back to the Eden story, the creation story, but also forward to the new creation at the end of time, and that these two are somehow linked in the the story that, that Mark tells us. Or, if you wanted to put it another way, we could compare Jesus with Adam rather than with Moses. Jesus becomes, if you like, a second Adam, or a new Adam, and certainly um, you'll have heard that expression elsewhere in some of the, the New Testament writings. And the name that is used to describe Jesus throughout the Gospel of Mark, and also to a degree in the other Gospels, is the Son of Man, which of course we all know that man is just a translation of Adam. So actually, calling Jesus the Son of Man could really just mean he's a descendant of Adam. He's one of us, if you like. (coughs) And this idea of Jesus as a second Adam, a new Adam, is something that Paul picks up in the letters. So Mark's account is just four statements long. Two verses, four statements. And so we'll just take a look at those. Firstly... As soon as God's voice has been heard declaring Jesus' divine sonship, which is where we ended up last week, we read the next bit that says, and immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. Jesus is driven into the wilderness. Not in a jeep, I would hasten to add, because they'd long since hadn't been invented. But the word driven could equally have been translated as expelled, ejected, cast out. There is within the choice of words an echo of the expulsion of Adam and Eve from Eden. Not only does Jesus have no choice about this, but basically he is shoved from behind into a wilderness situation. If you compare that with the other Gospels, he's led by the Spirit, as if the Spirit draws him 
into the wilderness. It's, it's much gentler in the other, the other Gospels. But for Mark, he's pushed out there. No choice, off you go, into the wilderness. And in this expulsion, Jesus, who has just been identified as the Son of God, is now identified with the prototypical human, Adam. He is the Son of Man, the Son of Adam. And I think we do well to remember that as we read this. Because actually, right at the start of this gospel, Mark has first Jesus identifying himself with his Jewish contemporaries, with those who came to John for baptism. And he receives John's baptism, a symbol of repentance and alignment with God, which we kind of recognized last week is confusing when we relate that to Jesus. Then, in the mysterious descent of the dove, he is related to God. And now, he's identified with the whole of humanity, those who came before him and those who will come after him. So he identifies with every one of us. But unlike the Genesis story, where Adam is thrown out of paradise or Eden to till the earth and to have difficulty... Jesus is expelled from obscurity, he's come from nowhere, into the wilderness. The wilderness which for these readers would have been understood as a place of preparation. Whilst Matthew and Luke spend an awful lot of energy in detailed description of three encounters between Jesus and the devil, Mark refers to satanic temptation only tangentially. In this account, the emphasis is not on the intellectual or spiritual battle with evil. It's not some kind of proving ground ahead of Jesus' ministry. He's not there to be tested to see if he's good enough for the job. For Mark, this is a pause time, a period of preparation, not witnessed and not described. 40 days. 40 days is the same length of time as Noah and his family lived unobserved in the ark with all the animals in their twos or fourteens or whatever it was. 40 days is the number of days that Elijah spent alone and unseen at Mount Horeb before he had his encounter with God at the mouth of a cave. And 40 days is also the length of time that Goliath taunted the Israelites before um, the encounter that led to David offering to Saul that he was the one to slay the Philistine. 40 days is just Bible code for a long time. But also for a waiting time. A time in which it seems like nothing much happens. 40 days as a signal to the reader who knows how this book works to say, hang on a minute, there's a twist in the plot coming up. The story is about to change. This is a kind of, hmm, what's going to happen next? Jesus is driven out into the wilderness, the place of preparation, the place of waiting, for a period of 40 days or for a long time. Oh, and and by the way, he's tempted by Satan. 
we could spend a lot of time, a lot of time, exploring why Mark uses the name Satan as distinct from the name devil used by Matthew and Luke. But frankly, I'm not going to. I don't think that's important to what we are going to do today. We just note that the gospel writers have made a choice and that they would have had a reason, an emphasis that they were trying to make through that. Jesus is driven out into the wilderness. He's driven out there for 40 days. And in the wilderness are wild beasts. If you read Matthew and Luke, you will find there is no mention of animals in the wilderness. So why does Mark refer to them? The wilderness may have had symbolic significance, and I think it did, but it's also a literal place in which very earthly dangers lurk, including wild animals that might attack, injure, or kill an unwary traveller. It's a bit like our little sheep when it was down in the, in the dark valley. In the view of some scholars, during this time, Jesus was able to peacefully coexist with the animals that were found there, the wild animals. Now, I actually think that peaceful coexistence is probably read in. It seems a bit eisegesis-y to me. But it's quite clear that Jesus comes through the experience uninjured and having had no apparent need to defend himself from an attack. So it's certainly been okay. There hasn't been um, any sense of it with real um, danger coming to pass. Given that the author has already prompted them to recall the messages of Isaiah in relation to John and Jesus, it does seem possible to agree with the scholars that there are other hints um, within this opening verses of Mark of the book of Isaiah or the books of Isaiah, whichever model you choose to sign up to. And that the words we heard as our call to worship from Isaiah 32 um, are part of that, the idea of the, of the wilderness as the place that becomes a forest and the forest that becomes the place of justice and peace. But also in Isaiah 11 and 65, very familiar words. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and the little child shall lead them. It's a vision of the age of salvation, a vision of a time when God's deliverance would transform the wilderness and restore harmony through the whole of creation. Could it be possible that this is what Mark had in mind when he notes that there were wild animals in the wilderness? In this wilderness, in this place of preparation, in this place that is inherently dangerous, is the place that God begins the work of the new creation. It's a very interesting thing to think about. And if this is so, then we have a theology, which is certainly found in various epistles, that tells us clearly that salvation is for the whole of creation and not just for humankind. And if we accept that, if we, if we feel that that's correct, then it has to be kept in mind as we go on to read Mark's gospel story. 
the eschatological horizon, the, the new creation, the overcome of all that deals death begins to happen to be a reality when God's spirit casts a man called Jesus out of obscurity via baptism into a place where dangerous animals live. A place where he doesn't just survive, but he seems to thrive. And then lastly in Mark's two-verse account, Jesus is waited upon by angels. Unlike Luke and Matthew, who have Jesus fasting to the point of being famished and faint, Mark tells us a different story. Rather than fasting, Jesus is being fed, because that's what waiting on means, bringing somebody what they need. His time in the wilderness is much more like that of Elijah, before he went to Mount Horeb, where he would sleep and eat, sleep and eat, the food mysteriously appearing. And when he had slept and eaten, he had the strength to journey on towards the Mount Horeb, something that took 40 days. Maybe Mark just isn't interested in the fasting aspect of the story, or maybe it doesn't fit with the story that he feels he's led to tell. But instead, for him, the place of abandonment, the place potentially of temptation or struggle, the wilderness is instead a place of pause, preparation, and even surprisingly, of nourishment and tender care. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. In that difficult place comes the care. It seems to me that this story is not primarily about the temptation to sin. But actually it's a really clever subversion or reversal of the story of the expulsion from paradise or Eden. In which the son of God, Jesus, also the son of Adam, the son of all humanity, enters the wilderness and begins to inaugurate the age of salvation. Well, that's all nice, isn't it? It's great to think about that theologically. So what? Why does Mark tell the gospel this way? Why does he miss out all these accounts of the temptations and give us these vague and veiled hints at some kind of Isaiah vision? And what difference does any of that make to any of us anyway? Just a few thoughts. You will have your own. It seems really striking to me that Mark has no interest in the detail of Jesus' temptations. By comparison, the accounts in Luke and Matthew seem almost voyeuristic. The reader can be potentially savouring every nuance of what is said and done. And the devil said this and Jesus said that. Why isn't it exciting? And we kind of get drawn into it. Now, I actually think as examples of the kind of temptations Jesus experienced... These are really important and useful passages for us to spend time looking at. But I also wonder if Mark's chosen disinterest is also helpful. Temptation is a fact of life. Everybody experiences it. But to dwell on it, and more especially to dwell on that of others, 
is not very healthy. It can become voyeuristic. Oh, I wonder what they're up to. I wonder what's going on in their house. And if we can accept with Mark that Jesus' temptations were private and personal, then perhaps we can hear that in relation to our own temptations and those of other people. It doesn't mean they don't matter, but it means they're not something that we should be focusing all our attention on, wanting the juicy details. That's not what it's about. How do we view our own temptations and those of other people? Secondly, if we accept that this is indeed a gospel of salvation, not only for humanity, but for the whole of creation, including wild and tame animals, barren places and beautiful places, then it has to affect the way we live in the here and now. I can't give you a tidy prescription for what that looks like because devout Christians can and do reach very different conclusions on such diverse topics as animal welfare, ecology, vegetarianism and veganism, the use of the earth's natural resources, where you go on holiday, what food you buy, and so on and so forth. Perhaps what matters is not the absolute decisions we come to, but that our attitude, our thinking, is informed by that sense that this too is part of God's creation. This is included within God's plan of salvation. And that in some way for all of this, Christ died. You find hints of that in some of Paul's writing. It's not just my airy-fairy ideas. Lastly, I wonder if this reading of the story given us by Mark gives us a counter to all those who say in really well-meaning ways that our own unchosen and unwanted wilderness experiences are somehow willed by God to teach us some kind of a lesson. There to test our faith. There to bless us in some mysterious way as we discover good things in bad. You see, Jesus wasn't driven into the wilderness to teach him a lesson or to test his faith or his obedience, at least not according to Mark. And God does not send illness or tragedy or death into our lives to see how faithful we are or to teach us some kind of lesson about repentance or doctrine. I would even go so far to say that God doesn't drive us into the wilderness places. But instead, when we find ourselves feeling alone, abandoned, frightened, ill, bewildered, grieving, whatever it is, in those wilderness places, God comes and joins us. God sends us angels, and angels are just messengers. And messengers are just people who come alongside us and journey with us. People who will wait on us. I wonder if sometimes we're too busy looking for some kind of supernatural intervention. When God gently comes alongside us in the guise of a nurse or a neighbour, or a teacher, or even a stranger. One of the really odd things about Christianity when compared to other secular worldviews is that all of us actually know we're sinners. 
We all know we have temptations. We all know we get it wrong. We don't need to be reminded of that. And I wonder in finishing if maybe Mark's brief account offers us the freedom to put less emphasis on our sinful nature and more emphasis on God's promise of a reconciled creation. And if we do that, maybe we will be a little bit kinder to ourselves, to each other, and to the whole of God's creation. Amen. Now let us bring our prayers to God for others and for ourselves. Let us pray. O God, our Father, we come to you this morning in need of your forgiveness, in need of your healing, in need of your encouragement, and in need of renewed strength for the journey of life. We heard once again today of how the Spirit drove your Son into the wilderness to face trial and temptation. And in some ways, we too feel that we sojourn in a wilderness. At this time of year, when festivities are over, and when we face the dark mornings and the harsh realities of the routine of our daily lives, we too may feel tempted to despair about our lives. What are we living for? What is the purpose of our daily routines and anxious strivings? Why should we want to continue the witness of our church, the effort to maintain a living faith in a largely secular world? Lord, grant us your grace that we might be given renewed confidence and the strength to persevere in your service. Help us to catch the vision of a world characterized by your love for each one of us and our loving response to those around us. Lord, over these past days, we have again been made starkly aware of the divisions in our world. Not only divisions between rich and poor, the affluent and the hungry, those who enjoy the benefits of health care and education and good housing, and others who suffer all the agonies of illness and famine and oppression. But we have also been made conscious of fear and conflict which can arise due to ideological differences. Differences in political approaches, and particularly religious differences. Lord, we are aware of the vital importance of living faith, but we would pray that in all expressions of faith there would be tolerance and understanding of others' points of view and understanding of their reality. May all the faith groups and creeds be saved from the terrible consequences of unbridled fundamentalism under whatever banner they gather. May living faith be demonstrated only in love and care for one another and may devotion to God be manifested in such a way that it promotes peace and tolerance and a willingness to accept the rights of others to express their views without fear for their lives. Lord God, we remember now those of our own church fellowship who are going through times of trial or sadness, and we would especially think of Alan Boswell and his sons and all the family at this time of mourning and of loss. We give thanks for the life of Netta, known and loved by all of us in this church family. We give thanks for all she was to Alan and to their sons and daughters-in-law and grandson, and for her contribution 
to the life of this church over many years. We pray that Alan may be conscious at this time of your everlasting arms to uphold him at this hour and to sustain him in the days ahead. And so we all come to you today as pilgrims of a journey, drawn together in the common purpose as we seek to be church. Lord, you know each one of us. You know our strengths and weaknesses. You know how we are tempted and how easily we fall. Gather us all together, we pray, and meet us in our needs. Inasmuch as is possible, help each one of us to be a blessing and a boon to others. And may we show forth your love in all our actions, great or small. We pray for the whole family of God worshipping throughout the world today. May they find encouragement and a rich reward as they seek to follow in your way. Bless this, our own fellowship at Hillhead. We give thanks for all those who have been prepared to give of their time, their money and their energy to sustain our worship, fellowship and witness here. And as over the coming months we expect to go forward in a new phase of development, may we all be prepared to be active and supportive in all the challenges that will face us. Keep us loyal and faithful and help us to encourage one another in all that we do in your name. Finally, as we reflect on the broad canvas of the world, of our nation, our church, and all that these spheres imply for us, may we be ready to pause as one in the wilderness, waiting for the word, and listen to that still small voice as you seek out each one of us, ready to assure us you are with us in all things, no matter what may befall. Hear these our prayers as we bring them in and through the Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. May the God who leads, the God who sends, the God who accompanies, bless us with companions for the journey, places to pause and reflect and courage to face the everyday challenges of life, today and every day. Mm -hmm.